This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can now find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Sam Liu's 2010 movie, Planet Hulk. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb and James to explain the comic book concepts that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, guys, I was reporting a little bit of news on the mini-side last week about a Lobo movie. So, who's he? What's a Lobo do? <laughs> Seb, this is yours. <laughs> yeah, so Lobo is a DC character who I think first appeared in the late 80s, or possibly earlier than that, actually. I mean, I, I, I kind of remember his main appearances as being around the sort of mid to late 80s and early 90s. Um, he was co-created by Keith Giffen, um, who's an artist and writer. Um, I don't know who his other creators were. Um, but basically, he was a sort of... I think there's definitely elements of being a parody of Wolverine. He's sort of... Particularly in the way that he looks and the way that he talks and the way that he has these regenerative powers. But he's more of... Um, I mean, he's, I think he's sometimes played as an anti-hero, but he's more often an antagonist. Um, and he's basically okay. this kind of... Um, sort of over-the-top angry bounty hunter. Um, but yeah, it's a sort of, what What if you took Wolverine but took away every element of Wolverine that made him remotely heroic, I think. <laughs> and also don't really, don't really play it seriously. Well, so is it a little bit Deadpool as well then? Yeah, there's a little bit element of Deadpool. I think, I think the thing is, is that, yeah, he was sort of, he was intended as a sort of, initially as like a parody of that over-the-top kind of character, and then became popular on an on an unironic level, and so started to get <laughs> used. Um, you know, sort of played a lot more. Not exactly straight because he would generally still be played for comedy, but you know, started to get played as the character that 
the reader was supposed to identify with rather than uh... <laughs> so what's what is underpinning that popularity because he's supposed to be well they're working on a lobo movie i mean is it maybe just a case of giving dc a, a deadpoolish kind of character not notwithstanding the fact that Deadpool is a you know visually and in terms of some aspects of character is a rip off of Deathstroke, I would say Lobo is the closest that um, DC have got to a Deadpool kind of character in that sort of uh, comedic anti-hero. Oh, Harley Quinn, I suppose. Yeah, Harley Quinn's probably kind yeah. of. I mean, the way that Harley Quinn's popularity went. I mean, no, because Harley Quinn's popular for all kinds of different reasons, but the current version of Harley Quinn, I think, is is not. I was going to say not dissimilar to Lobo in some ways. No, she's dissimilar in lots of ways. But there are also ways in which that over-the-top violent kind of character is... They're, uh, they're definitely from the same wheelhouse, mm. those three characters. The funniest thing that um, that DC have done with Lobo recently is, um, in the New 52, they initially introduced, like, a classic-style Lobo, which is sort of, you know, he's this big, massive, hulking guy with big, long hair and a, and a Wolverine-esque hair and beard and, mm. and big red eyes. Um, and then they decided that they wanted to introduce a new sort of New 52-style version in which he was kind of slimmer and hunkier. And so what they did was they they said that the Lobo that they had initially introduced or, you know, kind of reintroduced in the New 52 was an imposter and had the new version kill the old Lobo who they said was an imposter. <laughs> and most people just went, well, why have you done this? Because anyone who would ever be interested in reading a Lobo comic would surely want to read the original <laughs> rather than this weird sort of slightly emo looking character. <laughs> Um, it's just, it's, you know, I think they sort of, they probably don't really know what to do with him now, but then he's a total relic of 90s comics. Um, I mean, he, he probably was, uh, is most striking when drawn by Simon Bisley, um, you know, the 2000 AD artist and, you know, Bisley's style is like so incredibly of that era. Um, and, and Lobo very much fits in with that style and, and that era really. Yeah, it's interesting that you say he's very, like, anti-hero mould. I I do wonder whether, you know, obviously DC have got Suicide Squad and mm. we know that the Shazam movie has cast a big old movie star as its antagonist, um, if if that still does come to pass with The Rock. Um, do, do you think it would be maybe a sensible kind of backup plan for DC to have to really, really double down on really good antagonists and maybe maybe that they've got such a strong like you know batman's rogues gallery is arguably as good as the entire rogues gallery we've seen in the mcu so far so you know could (laughs) is would that be a viable plan b for dc to get you invested in the villains as much as the heroes it could be but the problem as as with anything like this really is that i'm i'm just wary of too many films or, or adaptations being too similar you know um like homogeneity is, is is the biggest problem i think facing these films in much the same way as it's it's been the biggest problem facing particularly dc comics over the last five or six years um you know just because something works in one film or one series of films i don't want to see everything else trying to copy that but if dc did a lobo film the obvious point that everyone would make would be you're only doing this because of deadpool and it would be hard to argue with, to be honest. I mean, I mean, you know, DC have some plenty of good villains and plenty of good anti-heroes, but 
I would kind of like to see some some DC heroes actually being heroes, but you know, <laughs> we've like, had that. Lobo's, that, that, that would be nice as a counterpoint, at least. Lobo's kind of well past his peak of popularity as well. It's it's very hard to sell a Lobo film to comics fans because all the people who liked him have left comics. <laughs> yeah, you could. He's not a character you could sell on his name. I mean, even Deadpool who, you know, had initially peaked in popularity in the 90s, had had a revival, and Deadpool was a character who was recently popular. It's similar to what I said about Venom, really, but even, I think, Venom I was, I has a little bit more recognition about him than than a character like Lobo. He is just, I mean, I mean, I'd say he was introduced in the 80s, but he's an incredibly 90s character. It's It's that early 90s, violent, anti-hero kind of character. And unlike... Deadpool or Venom, um, nothing interesting has really been done with him since to kind of change or develop him, other than the fact that they tried to completely redesign him and it was just pointless. Um, he's he's not a character who stands up very well to trying to give him any kind of depth or reinvention. Um, so yeah, has he he's... got any role in Rebirth? Is there any is there any Lobo plans in Rebirth that we know about? <sighs> not that I'm aware of. He might around he had he had a series recently but i think he, he recently had a his own title i've no idea who was working on it it may have been giffen again um but that's not in rebirth it's it was cancelled towards the end of last year um he's he's a character you could imagine cool. showing up as a fun supporting character in something um i mean maybe not in suicide squad because that needs to be reasonably grounded and he is a space alien um yeah but you could work him in somewhere. If you had something that already had a cosmic bent to it, um, then maybe. Justice League. Justice well, if, League. If, if they ever did... Because with DC, you've got a thing called the Legion of Superheroes, which is set in the future. But they did a version of it that he appeared in, because Keith Giffen was also involved, called Legion. Um, it's about L-E-G-I-O-N. And it was set more in the present but it was kind of space based and it was it wasn't too connected to legion of superheroes but it had a similar name and it had some similar characters um but it was legion were like a sort of um like an interstellar police force kind of thing um and if you did something like that it, like if that was the way you decided to open up the space side of dc basically if DC, if you did a dc version of guardians of the galaxy is essentially what i'm talking about um yeah. then i think that's that's where he would fit but otherwise he wouldn't fit in the existing DC cinematic universe at all. Not least because yeah. there's so much elements of comedy about him. <laughs> okay, um, well, we'll move on now to this week's comic book movie and TV news, which is kind of what we just did a little bit of anyway. But I'd like to start things off with um, some news which broke over on HitFix, on HitFix the other day. Um, it's since been debunked by Fox, but... It's, I think it's interesting to talk around anyway because um, it gives me an excuse to ask you guys about the new mutants. Um, and so this news was um, Hitfix were reporting that um, Maisie Williams, Game of Thrones is Arya Stark, um, was going to be playing Wolfsbane, a.k.a. Rain Sinclair, in the movie. And that Anya Taylor-Joy, who is um, who stars in The Witch, which is, uh, has been quite a popular horror movie, um, so far this year, was on board to start as Ileana Rasputin, a.k.a. Magic, um, and that they were also planning on casting Cannonball and Sunspot and Mirage, and that there would be pretty notable roles for the new version of Storm, 
um, played by Alexandra Shipp um, in X-Men Apocalypse, and also James McAvoy's Professor X. But Fox have denied that this is the case. Um, it could simply be a case that all of this is, you know, that all of this is definitely what the plans are for the movie. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe Maisie Williams hasn't signed on the dotted line yet. Um, that kind of thing. Or it could com- be completely false and Maisie Williams is just one of the names who is like on a wish list or something. But say this was a version of the New Mutants, you know, with that kind of lineup with a character like Storm coming across and with James McAvoy's Professor X kind of running the whole affair. Is that a New Mutants movie that you guys could get excited about? To the extent I could get excited by any New Mutants movie. <laughs> Like I kind of I find the new mutants kind of weird because most of the characters like had their heyday while I in between the eras of comics that I like. So like I like the early X-Men comics and I like the 90s onwards, but they were big throughout the 80s and I kind of didn't ever get. There was a sort of thing of by the time I started reading comics the new mutants had already turned into X-Force and most of the characters weren't around and I I never rent, went back and read them, so I didn't... You know, I don't feel like I care about the New Mutants in any specific way. Is Am I right in thinking that the New Mutants were kind of an excuse for Chris Claremont to kind of go back to telling some of the X-Men stories that he was telling earlier in his run and that basically all of his mutants had now grown up and become adults and that this was a way of going back to the well of Professor X having a school and training these kids and taking them out on missions. Yeah, I mean, Chris Claremont was always writing adults, so it's not so much going back to that. It's more going back to the basic concept of the X-Men and doing, like, trainee teenage mutants. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely to offset the kind of... Because Claremont went all over the place in the 80s. Like, he had them... Had the X-Men split up for years at a time, like, live in Australia or in space or whatever. Like, it was... He was doing good good things with the concept, but things that weren't the X-Men concepts as it was originally conceived. So, yeah, New Mutants was an attempt to get back to that with new characters. Yeah. I just wonder whether that might be a, a nice way for X-Men to segment its universe and to have movies feeling different. Um, there was already um, the talk that this movie was... Uh, it's being directed by Josh Boone, who um, directed The Fault in Our Stars, and that this would be a distinctly more, like, young adult take on the X-Men. So, you know, kind of trading on the on the tropes of those kind of genres, so I would imagine kind of, you know, a little bit more romance and kind of, you know, maybe feeling a little bit more Hunger Games-y, Maze Runner-y, Twilight-y, Harry Potter-y than, you know, a big tentpole blockbuster to hold up the middle of the summer. Yeah, I mean... Uh, that sort of stuff is what I think is missing from the current X-Men movies. So I, you know, I'd be on board with that. And, you know, really, and, and I, you would imagine I do, that that would, sorry, go on. I was going to say, I do like, I don't hate these characters or anything. Like if, you know, if, if they were in a film and done well, I'd be interested in seeing it. It would, it would kind of slightly surprise me. And I'm, you know, again, I, I would totally agree that as far as a concept goes, that would be a, a good concept to play with. And I certainly don't disagree with the idea of doing that with the films. Um, 
But firstly, yeah, I mean, like like James, I've just got so little interest in or affection for those particular characters. I mean, you know, I know far less about the X-Men than James, and, and they are mostly not characters I'm at all familiar with, apart from when they've been reused since, like, you know, Magic being in, in recent X-Men, and um, mm. Wolf Spain's in um, Peter David's X-Factor, is she? Yeah. Um, so I've kind of encountered her vaguely in the bits of that that I've read. What surprises me and, and, and what kind of makes me a little sceptical about this news actually is the idea of just lifting that exact set of characters wholesale because the X-Men movies have never done that. The X-Men yeah. movies have tended to selectively pick and choose characters either, you know, because they've got actors who they want to use as them or, you know, the, the X-Men films have tended to create their own character dynamics by pulling in characters from different eras of X-Men. So if they were to do a New Mutants film, I would more likely expect them to look across X-Men history and go, oh, we haven't used them yet, we haven't used them yet, let's pick a couple of characters from Grant Morrison's run, let's take a couple of characters from X-Force, let's maybe take one or two characters from New Mutants and put those characters together as, as young, put those characters together as youngsters. Um, it would surprise me to see them just lift the whole of New Mutants and adapt it straight because, you know, they, they've never done the original 60s team they've, um, on its own. You know, they've never done the 70s team on its own. They've never done Grant Morrison's team or Joss Whedon's team on their own. So I would rather see them put a bit more thought into picking specific characters and, and better characters from, from across the run that haven't been used yet. I'd really like to see them make use of... Um, Although they won't, but some of the characters from Peter Milligan's Ecstatics slash X Force <laughs> thrown into that setup would be quite interesting, I think. I mean, something something that does make me a bit skeptical of those rumours is that it's like aside from Storm, I think it's the exact lineup of New Mutants, like it's all the original yeah. characters. And as Seb said, that that's not something they've done in the past. Like the X Men movies haven't been very close adapting the comics at all. Mm. But again, maybe this is something that they're, you know, looking at Deadpool and going, we went slightly more comics accurate there, and that this would be maybe a slightly lower risk movie to do that in. Even Deadpool, they threw in Colossus and Negasonic Teenage Warhead, who characters who basically have nothing to do with Deadpool and just happened to be plucked from two completely different X-Men eras because they decided that they would work in that film. You know, so even that, you know, it's not the most 100% comics accurate thing. In terms of the look it was, but, you know. It's just very difficult to speculate about X-Men, isn't it? Given that, you know, we've kind of got these, like, you know, these timelines and these different realities now and not knowing whether Apocalypse is going to keep going with those versions of the characters, uh, you know, in the early 90s or whether it's going to... Whether it's gonna ha- whether we're gonna have X Men movies set in the present day anymore, and where's Gambit gonna be, and all that kind of stuff. And so, because in a way, I would wonder if you know if, if they if they're looking to get McAvoy in this and kind of go, well, maybe a New Mutants franchise is the way to keep around characters like that, and then we'll just age up characters like so you know Sophie Turner's Jean Grey and Cody Smith McPhee's Nightcrawler, and do more futurey. X-Men, main X-Men movies. Because I do wonder, you know, now if you're using those as big apocalyptic tent poles, do some space stuff. We'll have some crazy storylines in your main X-Men movies and then just do grounded character stuff in franchises like this. Yeah, I, find, I do find it all slightly more encouraging that X-Men seems to be, whether it's through careful planning or not, seems to be 
changing up what they're doing and they're adding a bit of variety into their superhero universe, which I think could be quite refreshing, given what we just said about homogeneity being the thing that these movies need to fight against. And would and wouldn't it be nice for for a movie to like this to pitch to a younger audience? Because there are an awful lot of comic book movies that are pitching directly at adults, and I think <laughs> you know maybe if this does what the Amazing Spider-Man attempted to do, but hmm. a bit more successfully, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, sticking with uh, Game of Thrones stars who are rumoured to be cast in um, superhero properties. This one isn't a rumour. This one is confirmed. Um, Jessica Henwick, um, who is one of the Sand Snakes on Game of Thrones. Now, it's not her fault that the Sand Snakes are terrible, but the Sand Snakes on Game of Thrones are really, really terrible. But Jessica <laughs> Henwick has signed on to play the female lead in Iron Fist, um, the character of Colleen Wing. Um, and uh, again, guys, you're going to have to uh, really explain this to me um, as to who she is and how she plays into Iron Fist, because I know so little about that. But what I do know is um, she is a British actress um, of Asian descent. Given that Iron Fist, they made the decision to cast uh, the whitest of white guys, also from Game of Thrones, in the lead role. Um, This is hinting, at least, that the series is going to be looking down a more diverse path. And am I right in thinking that Colleen Wing on the page is... A character who is, you know, kind of has Eastern and Western heritage. Uh, I can't remember if she has Western heritage. She definitely grew up in Japan and she's definitely Asian to, you know, some extent. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Like, the name Wing doesn't sound Japanese to me. But that might just be Chris Claremont not being entirely smart on that when he made the character made the character up i don't know it's hard to I'll say i'll tell you what, i just i've just seen she is apparently the daughter of a chinese american new york city professor and a okay. japanese mother okay that makes sense so yeah so yeah. wing is probably the chi- is a chinese name but she has a japanese mother and yeah. she but she's also <laughs> she's also part american okay how does she play into things is she, she hopefully more of just more than just a love interest for Danny Rand? Yeah, I don't think she's ever actually been a love interest for him, to be honest. Well, that's good. I'm not, like, I'm not entire, like, I'm not, you know, Iron Fist guy or anything, but, I, but I'm fairly sure that Misty Knight is usually the love interest out of... Oh, sorry, I should point out, she when she was introduced, she was in sort of a team called the Daughters of the Dragon, which were her and Misty Knight, um, who's also going to be in the Iron Fist TV series. Hmm. And of the pair... Misty Knight tends to be the love interest for Iron Fist. They came out of the same like exploitation trend that created characters like Luke Cage and, and Iron Fist. So they're sort of in themselves, they're kind of like generic kung fu characters or whatever. Yeah. Um, I wonder. I wonder whether those shows are going to have a massive amount of crossover in their first season. Because at this point, from everything that you guys have been telling me, it wouldn't surprise me at all to like hear Netflix announcing, you know, no season two for Luke Cage or Iron Fist, but saying, okay, well, we're going to do a Luke Cage and Iron Fist series. Well, it would be here if they did Heroes for Hire. Uh, I'm pretty yes. sure Colleen Wing would have been was in Heroes for Hire, so that that would make sense. <laughs> Just just on this casting, um, 
Game of Thrones, we've obviously mentioned Maisie Williams on, you know, with the New Mutants rumour. And Jessica Henrik hasn't played a a huge role in that series, but it does seem to be like a a great platform at the moment for young actors to kind of stand up and go, hey, cast me in a thing. I'm just wondering, you know, who's next, basically? (laughs) Are are you guys both Game of Thrones viewers? (laughs) I've not seen a second of it. No, well, I, you know, I, I am a total wuss when it comes to violence and gore, so I've steered massively clear of Game of Thrones. Um, okay. I've read about the first few chapters of the first book, and that's it. Oh, well, so basically we can't now engage in reckless, spe- reckless speculation about which of these actors could join. Kit Harrington could play Lobo, maybe. He's got the hair for it. Yeah, and I, I, I'll tell you what else. I can't, you know, I can't pose this as a future pitch question either. That's really upsetting no. for me. Guys, look into <laughs> current pop culture. Well, to be no, fair, the- I mean, we could, even without having watched Game of Thrones, I could name a British actor, and chances are they're probably in Game of Thrones at some point, so... <laughs> okay, well, um, you know, maybe Natalie Dormer as Captain Marvel will be next or something like that. I'll just... I'll, I'll that, throw it That in would there. be nice, yeah. Are you, is is this... Are you, are you guys getting any more interested in Iron Fist? Or, or is this just kind of confirmation of, yes, a character that I expected to be in this show is in this show? It's difficult for me to really talk about something like Iron Fist because, like, I'm not really interested in Iron Fist as a character generally, and I still haven't got round to watching all of the (laughs) Netflix shows with the characters that I do like. I mean, I haven't touched Daredevil Season 2 yet, despite how much I love The Punisher. So, yeah, I I can't, at the moment, I know everybody loves them, but I can't get too enthused about them until I've had a chance to properly catch up with them and deal with my inherent issues with the pacing of them, which has, has been the biggest barrier to me watching them in their entirety is how badly paced I think they are and then I just think well I'm going to go and watch an episode of The Flash instead um, you know like I've, I've, I've just I've just caught up on UK pace with The Flash so I've just watched the two-parter set on Earth 2 which is like <clears throat> 90 minutes of fantastic plot-filled superhero alternate universe television and I'd just rather be watching that than the Netflix stuff I'm sorry <laughs> Seb are we going to have to start up a Seb watch Daredevil in the same way that you have James watch The Flash. I mean, admittedly, The Flash is better than Daredevil. Sorry, James, but it, it is. Um, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I feel you on the pacing. Daredevil season two, um, much faster paced and like the first eight episodes kind of, you know, pretty solid until it runs out of story for the final four hours. <laughs> I do, we I will do, discuss I do, I, this at some point, won't we, James? We'll, we'll find yeah, a time. Yeah. To, we'll carve out a time to discuss some Daredevil season two and all our <laughs> lingering questions from the end of that season, such as, huh, what, <laughs> who Why? was behind it, and what was going on? Yeah, what's that? What's that hole? <laughs> no, not the big hole. In, I was talking about the plot hole. Ah, oh, zing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, James, watch the Flash. Seb, watch Daredevil. Go watch everything else. Um, Agents of Shield? No, no. Um, <laughs> okay, we'll move on to our final piece of news now, and um, this is basically an excuse for us to get our final, our final kind of bit of Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice out of our system, um, because I wanted to talk about the Batman v Superman box office. Um, 
Now, I'm, I'm fascinated by box office generally, and I think Batman v Superman has just been a super interesting case um, in, in regards to that, because this is a movie that launched to a kind of really massive for March, this is in the US at least, 160 million weekend, um, and by Tuesday it had already reached half a billion worldwide, and this was a sign that... You know, the critics who had given it, you know, a worse Rotten Tomatoes score because they're all, you know, that's what they're conspiring towards is creating this Rotten Tomatoes score that will troll you. Um, but that they this Rotten Tomatoes score had been completely ignored and that the critics were irrelevant and that this was a sign that, you know, critics were irrelevant, especially when it comes to these big blockbusters because people are going to see them anyway. Except then when you dig a little bit deeper into that news, you see that... Batman v Superman actually had the biggest drop-off from a Friday to Sunday of any film ever at the US box office, and that its second weekend is now shaping up to be something in the $50 million region in the US, which would be kind of devastating for a film like this in the US. And obviously it could still play really well worldwide and you know still has a chance at going over a billion and, and a bit more beyond that. But... To me, I found it interesting that obviously word of mouth and critical reception has had a big impact on that box office. Um, And, you know, we're already hearing signs of what DC are doing. You know, we've, there's, uh, I said in the minisode, Suicide Squad is apparently going back for reshoots to lighten it and to add more humour. And, you know, Zack and Deborah Snyder already talking about how Justice League is going to have a lighter tone than Batman v Superman. And, I've just found it all very interesting and I wonder what you guys think first of all about how the movie has performed and how it has registered with fans and critics and also what you think this is going to mean whether it is going to significantly shift how the DC Universe shapes up going forward I mean even Aquaman director James Wan was reassuring people at a convention last week that his movie was going to be fun Um, (laughs) hopefully not not what Zack Snyder defines as fun (laughs) Um, because, I'll tell you what, he's, he's um, got a job on his hands to make an Aquaman movie fun, is all I'll say. <laughs> um, I don't, actually, I, just, I, I would quite like to ask, um, what did, um, how did you guys spend um, the money that we got from Disney for, for slagging off the film? Uh, you know, all, all these riches that everyone has been given by Disney to systematically take down Batman v Superman. Well, I took you, most you of it, I'll be honest with, with you guys. You, you, you two, you know, as, as, as positive as I could have ever imagined yeah. you would be. So um, I'm I'm pocketing that money whenever it does come into our account from Disney. <laughs> I think I think maybe the, the funniest in, or Sony. <laughs> I'll, I'll take whatever we can get. If they if they back us on Patreon, I'll slam any movie they want me to. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, if um, I, I think the funny thing actually is looking now. At if I, I hadn't seen, but if you if you're saying that that Zach and Deborah Snyder had said that you know they will look to lighten the tone of of Justice League. That baffles me because I, I thought in the aftermath of this film's release, Zack Snyder was incredibly bullish about the fact that um, they'd made a film for the fans and that was what the fans wanted and what the critics said didn't matter. It was it was what the fans wanted. So I'm a little surprised if it turns out that actually the fan reaction has also not been exactly what they wanted because I thought they'd made this film for the fans and, and it was the fans that mattered and, and movie critics weren't real fans. So that's I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to hear Zack Snyder admit that because... You know, I thought he was completely in the right initially. Well, 
I don't think they've said they're going to lighten the tone, but they have said it's going to have that it is going to have a lighter tone in particular. Mm. If the Suicide Squad reshoot rumors are true, that's definitely you know that's definitely the case that that movie is being lightened. The, the funny thing about them about them lightening the tone of Suicide Squad is, I mean, I know that obviously what it's really based on is is the more recent stuff and and the stuff with Harley Quinn, but like. The original Suicide Squad comics, like, I mean, you know, we will talk about them when we get onto that movie, but um, they're great. And they're also great largely because they are pretty serious and sort of, you know, it's like if, if there was a film that could stand to be a totally serious and gritty and grounded take on a comic, Suicide Squad, like the original Suicide Squad, would be one of the first things on the list. So <laughs> it's kind of amusing that actually that instead they're pushing it in this completely wacky, insane direction. But that's the Deadpool effect more than anything isn't it well possibly and there was also the you know it was implied that the um the the trailer was actually not very indicative of the tone of the movie and that the trailer had gone down so well that... <laughs> they were like crap we need to make a film that's actually like this trailer <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> so adding some more jokes basically um, if, if if only Zack snyder thought to make films that were actually like his trailers <laughs> It's it's funny. I mean, I was listening to um, it was the uh, Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo podcast, um, but Robbie Collin was sitting in this week, and I thought he did um, an excellent job of explaining what he at least meant and what he felt that critics meant in general when they say about Batman v Superman being no fun and injecting fun into these superhero movies. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that there has to be jokes and it has to be the Marvel kind of tone, but it just means, you know, having kind of dialogue that crackles and having, you know, poetic justice and dramatic irony and just a film that, a film that feels like it has ups and downs and it takes you on a ride and that, you know, that, it is a film that is genuinely enjoyable and thrilling to sit through. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I, I don't particularly need a Batman Superman movie with a bunch of jokes in that sounds like, that looks like a, a Marvel movie. By all means, do something completely different. Um, and, you know, I, I think it would be a shame if DC decides and Warner Brothers decides that they need to homogenize their products to come up, to come more in line with what the other studios are doing. Um, just just execute better. Just, you know, just make better films. You can still you can still do grim dark and make it fun well that's that's the thing isn't it like having having the conviction to your tone and on every level and at every level of the studio is kind of what you need to make a good film it doesn't doesn't have to be light like a marvel movie just has to not be a complete mess of conflicting interests like fantastic four was yeah, and and like fun can mean so many different things, particularly in a, a superhero context. And you know, like an ace that DC have got up their sleeve is that DC's superhero concepts lend themselves so much better to expansion of scope than than Marvel's do. Not that Marvel stuff, you know, doesn't expand well in places, but um, I talked about this a little bit on on the Batman v Superman podcast that you know DC much more has this sense of superheroes as mythology, and it has a much bigger and wider, I think, sense of a of a big universe out there. And I think one of the biggest problems with Batman v Superman, I mean, you know, it's not just the grim dark tone; it's the fact that, and especially when you've got a 
director like Zack Snyder who specializes in spectacle. It's the fact that so much of the the setting and the story was very closed in. And okay, so they were planting stuff like the dark side stuff and you know, but like you can make DC stuff fun simply by throwing big ideas and big wider out there concepts and again i would i'll reference it again but i would look to flash one of the things that has made flash so enjoyable this season is that they've it's not just that it's got the light-hearted tone and it's got jokes in it it's that they've gone here's alternate universes and isn't it fun to see alternate versions of these characters that you know and love and how different they are in this other universe and having people crisscrossing between universes and who's that person and are they who they seem to be and and all of that stuff like that's fun because it's big and interesting and ideas driven. It doesn't necessarily mean you've got to crack wise all the time. It just means, you know, don't limit yourself to here are two guys punching the hell out of each other in a warehouse. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I think, I think, you know, we've probably, we've, we've done a good job of exhausting all of the comic book movie news this week. Um, And so what we'll do is we will take a little bit of a listen to the Planet Hulk trailer and we'll rejoin with our spoiler-filled discussion of that movie. Um, And at that point, you might realise why we've banged on for so long about the news. I am truly sorry for what we've had to do. We had no choice. May you finally. where our deaths are scheduled for today's entertainment. A warrior who looks into the eyes of death and stands his ground. All my life I've moved from one fight to the next. Now I don't know what to do. If you won't fight for us, at least fight for yourself. A warrior with boundless strength whose power knows no end. This is impossible. And this warrior shall strike down all evil. Unite all kingdoms. Hear that? They think you're the savior of this planet. They're wrong. And through his blood shall restore life to all of Sakaar. I once thought you were a man of honor, Hulk. Now I see you're nothing but a monster. Okay, so that was the trailer for Planet Hulk. Now, Planet Hulk is a 2010 animated movie, um, an adaptation of the comic book arc that, James, you recommended me after uh, we watched The Incredible Hulk, the MCU Incredible Hulk. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Just just part of it. Yes, I think I I read maybe, like, the first six issues of it, um, of which maybe made up about half of this animated movie yeah I, I think i think about 40 minutes was when i clocked there oh this is a what joe will know yeah um and we want this so obviously so we haven't done any animated movies on the podcast prior to this um well well we did ghost in the shell but we haven't done any animated movies kind of in in this mold in what dc and marvel tend to do these like straight to dvd direct adaptations of of particular storylines yeah 
Um, and so I've never really watched any of these before. My animated superhero stuff has normally been, you know, when I was younger, watching superhero cartoons and stuff like that. Um, and certainly not any anything like this one big arc. And I thought it would be interesting to look at one of these movies and look at how they translate the source material and get into get into the you know the the whys and the wherefores of it and what i hinted at before is um i don't think that this movie on its own guys is the most interesting thing i've ever watched (laughs) (laughs) it's a little bit by the numbers yeah and it's it's got a good reputation as as like one of the better of of these animated movies by all accounts and i think i think both james and i will admit that you know we're we're not generally huge fans of these adaptations anyway i can i can see the purpose that they serve but it's not a purpose that has ever really felt necessary for me it's like when you sort of to just directly adapt a comic story in animation. I think if you're directly adapting something in live action and, and something like Watchmen would be the obvious example, I think there will always be interesting changes and choices that you make with casting and choices that you make with how it looks that will mean it can be a worthwhile endeavour. But I think if you're in animation anyway, you know, it doesn't feel like it's much of a step up from those motion comics that Marvel did for a while. <laughs> motion comics is what I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it doesn't feel like you add a lot. Yeah, you and you could just be reading the comic. And in some cases, I think it's lessened, not even so much by the story choices that you make, but for example, there's a quite highly regarded adaptation of All-Star Superman. Um, but by its very nature, while they do do an animation style that tries to slightly resemble Frank Whiteley's art, it's not Frank Whiteley's art. And any version of All-Star Superman that doesn't have Frank Whiteley's art in it is by its very nature an inferior version, even if the story and everything else about it is is done intact. And so, yeah, I just think, okay, you know, this is a convenient way to get the story of Planet Hulk in a convenient 70-odd minute, you know, digestible chunk rather than sitting down and reading the comic. I just, I don't know why I would ever choose to consume it in this form over the comic. And if I've already read yeah. the comic, the adaptation doesn't seem to give me any reason to watch it in and of itself. And that's even true of there are some, you know, quite big ones that, like, I mean, DC have done. Um, they did a two-part adaptation of Dark Knight Returns. Um, they did a Batman, which I have watched and which was okay. A Batman Year One that I haven't, but which I gather is very good f- for what it is. But it's just... <sighs> It feels to me like the only market that this really appeals to is total completists, you know? Um, <laughs> See, I was sort of thinking it's for people who are in- interested in the story but don't read comics. Yeah, which I'm sure yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are people like that. And, and the sales of these and the fact that they keep making them suggest that there is an audience for them. I just don't think we are that audience. <laughs> well, have you, guys, have you guys watched many of these before? I know you just mentioned... Th- those seven i know like some some kind of have better reputations than others um but like you said this this is one that I, again we picked out because we i mean none of us had seen it before but kind of heard that you know it, it had this um reputation um have, have you watched many others and i mean because this to me felt like it was doing from from what i'd read on the page almost like you know just a, a literal direct adaptation of the source material um but i mean i watched um i when i was googling around for um 
what other people had written about The Dark Knight Returns um, this week, I came across a couple of clips of the um, animated movie because every time you search for The Dark Knight Returns, that's actually <laughs> like one of the top results is the animated thing. Um, and I watched like a clip of it on um, YouTube and it didn't look... It didn't. It looked like something that had been adapted from the comic because it was something involving Cassie Kelly running around, and I was like, I don't remember seeing anything like that on the page. Um, whereas there was there was nothing really that stood out to me like that here. So, do does this genre tend to be a little bit more ambitious in what it does ever in terms of adaptation, or or is this is this generally the hard and fast rule of just following an arc from the comic? I mean, I, I I think um I think ambitious is the wrong word to use. <laughs> I think reductive maybe because yeah. they probably think oh the the comic isn't paced like a movie. Let's put an action sequence here or whatever. Like certainly in Planet Hulk, they strip away a huge amount of the story to try and make it shaped like a film, and I'm not sure they even manage that. Mm, there's a um I mean again I, I mean I haven't seen it, but there's a a reasonably well regarded um one called Superman Doomsday that's an adaptation of Death of Superman. And by its nature, because Death of Superman was part of an ongoing story, so you had plot threads that were from earlier issues that were resolved in it, and you had the fact that Death of Superman directly leads into World Without and then Return of Superman. But Superman Doomsday had to be a self-contained thing, so they simplify um, a lot of the plot elements of it. So they still have a reasonably close approximation of the Superman and Doomsday fight, and they do the return of Superman in it, but they don't do you know, the full replacement Superman. And I mean, they don't do what is basically most of the fun stuff in return of Superman, unfortunately. Um, so it's, but in general, I think, you know, other than the elements that they have to simplify to make it a movie, I believe that the aim of these is to give something that is much closer to the plot line and, and stuff of a, of the comic than a, than a live action movie would ever be able to. And I think that's their purpose. And I think if you look at most of the ones that they've done, they have tended to be, adaptations of comics that you would never expect to see made into a movie and despite what some people have said about oh they should do a planet hulk movie planet hulk is one that i would say that i wouldn't expect to ever see live action so they might as well do an animated version of it (laughs) of these animated movies though am i right in thinking that although the majority are like this that they are direct adaptations that we also get some as well that are kind of just like because, I mean, the only other animated film I can think I watched was... Um, I was sat with my young cousin who's like five, six years old and he was watching an Avengers animated movie. Um, and I think the Hulk was the villain in that, actually. Um, it was like kind of like a, you know, birth of the Avengers kind of thing. Um, I don't know what it is. That might be a problem. But I'm wondering, is is there some of them that just do their own thing, that just, just tell a cartoon story of, like, you know, basically do what Joss Whedon does with the Avengers, which is, you know, here are these characters, let's tell a story around them. And I, you know. I don't know well, about the Marvel ones. The well. DC ones no. don't tend to. There are, definitely at Marvel, there are a lot that are just original ad- adaptations. Like, I have a feeling you were watching the Ultimates movie there. Um, which is one that I've seen. Uh, I know, I think Warren Ellis wrote an Iron Man one very early on called Rise of the Technovore, mm. uh, which oh, yeah, I also watched, although I fell asleep during it, which speaks to its quality. <laughs> I think we... Um, yeah, so it's something they do do, but I don't think it it necessarily results in anything much better. 
Um, I, I, every every one of these movies I've seen, I found disappointing, and that keeps me far away from being exhaustive in watching them. I'm just looking down the list yeah. of DC ones, and yeah, they. I, I think the only exceptions are they've done two Green Lantern ones, which don't seem to specifically be based on specific Green Lantern comics. Although, do you know, I'm surprised if they're doing Green Lantern ones. I'd be amazed if they haven't, or if or why they haven't done Sinestro Corps War at some point, because that's like the one truly massively highly regarded Green Lantern comic story of the last 30 years. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, everything is, whether whether loose or, or tight, they do tend to be adaptations of specific comics. So, um, you know, God, they've even yeah. done Superman versus the Elite, which is uh, like a single-issue <laughs> story called What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way from the early 2000s. They've turned that into a film. They've done Dark Knight Returns. They did Flashpoint. The Flashpoint one, I think, got quite good reviews from people who would want to see a flashpoint movie um yeah they've got they did son of batman which was a very loose adaptation of the first part of grant morrison's run um apparently they've got a killing joke one coming up which yes yeah yeah but it looks like is mark hamill actually doing it yes mark hamill is doing it um yeah, yeah. so and kevin conroy, kevin conroy. yeah see that i yeah. mean it probably won't be very good but you do almost go well it's kevin conroy and mark hamill that might be worth a look but um so is it is it fair to maybe assume that there is a bit of a divide then so when you've got the direct adaptations that that may be there for a different market than the than the kind of more invented marvel ones are that maybe yeah the the more invented marvel ones are for like a younger audience i think that's definitely the case introduction to those characters yeah whereas the whereas so is this is a movie like planet hulk the animated planet hulk is that is that aimed at adults? The Planet Hulk one feels more like a DC version. one to me. That's what's quite interesting about it is it's it seems much... I don't know how many of these <clears> ones Marvel have done where they've done direct adaptations, but you know, Planet Hulk felt to me like more like the DC ones that I've seen than these original Marvel ones, definitely. I do, yeah. think, I do think they're probably aimed at a younger audience than us. Like, knowing the storyline mm. and having seen the movie now, it's... Like, it's so obviously stripped back to make it understandable for, yeah. in mm. sort of simpler terms. I can I can only assume it's aimed at not even all ages, like, specifically young audiences. But, the, but I don't know, because the animation style and some of the violence and stuff in it, I mean, this... Yeah, that's true, It actually. doesn't yeah, really... A lot of blood in I say that, that's why it felt to me more like um, a, a DC one, in that it, you know, it did seem aimed at sort of maybe 11 and up kind of audience rather than you know seven yeah. to ten year olds like some of the other ones yeah maybe so maybe maybe this is yeah not not kind of yeah seven to ten but you're right kind of like you know i don't know like 11 to 15 mm. it it certainly this the movie really is only like 70 75 minutes long uh, when you take the credits and stuff out of it and I found myself getting kind of bored pretty quickly and I don't know whether that's because I knew half of the plot but it just it didn't it didn't seem like a thing that was trying to engage an adult audience and I was surprised I I, I was kind of expecting it to um I mean I, I I can't imagine how you do something like Dark Knight Returns and don't do that pitching at a more adult audience mm. so I mean uh, uh, is <laughs> what I'm driving at here is 
these these animated movies have to be segmented, don't they? They have to there has to be different ones that are appealing to different people because I I'd kind of in my head just had them all as kind of this one mass of things that I I wasn't that interested in watching but was interested in them you know in 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 their place mm. in this industry especially as superhero movies start dominating the box office. Um but yeah, so basically, there must be they make these movies, and they're they're appealing to different people each time. Yeah, I think so. But, yeah, but they, this, they, there's this no happens to be this happens to be a one that's you know would we probably have to be ten, fifteen, twenty years younger to 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 really get a lot more out of it. <laughs> I mean, in that sense, that's probably a sense in which they skew close to the comics as well. You know, you've got comics which are suitable or aimed for an all-ages audience, and you've got ones that, that patently aren't. And I mean, I say, I, I do think slightly more with the DC ones, particularly with the more recent ones, they've tended to move more into... I, I think what probably happened with them was they started out going, let's make these kind of slightly wider market animated films to appeal to an audience who might not read the comics... And then what probably happened was they realized that the people who were... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Buying them were more people who did already like the comics. And so they went, right, let's, let's, let's appeal to and pander to those people by doing these relatively faithful adaptations of, of comics that they love. Particularly when you look at the kind of ones that they've chosen, like Dark Knight Returns and Flashpoint. And it's the sort of... Um, it's the kind of thing that would be enjoyed by, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound slightly derogatory here, but the kind of person who would post on the support DC films hashtag that's been going on over the last few days <laughs> is the kind of person who's going to like a faithful adapted animated movie of Flashpoint or The Killing Joke. So read from that what you will. <laughs> you have a specific amount of credulity in mind. <laughs> yeah. I just can't imagine, like, uh, especially... Uh, after having watched this, I can't imagine seeing an animated version of a story that I've already read on the page and going, that's that's going to be yeah. a rewarding experience. It, it, it's um, hard to see what they add, yeah. Unless unless there is a, like a, a proper adaptation going on there where they... It just, it just feels like there is, there is too much of... Certainly here it felt like there's too much of a similarity between the two mediums mm, that definitely uh, between between animation and the comics on the page that if if you're not going to radically change the look through your animation style um then it it becomes difficult to to do more interesting adaptation stuff um 
And yet they do and undeniably have an audience. I mean, I, I think every, everything that you're saying there is reasons why they don't really appeal to us because we, we don't mm. feel like they add anything to the experience of reading them. But there must be people out there who they do because, and, and, and I'm, you know, we, I, we mentioned before, you know, there is an audience of people who don't read the comics who'll watch these instead. But equally, you know, you know, as you said, if you Google Dark Knight Returns, you get a lot of people talking about the movie. And in a lot of cases, that's comic book fans on comic book websites talking about how much they liked the animated movie of Dark Knight Returns. So there are people yeah. who read the comics and who then want to see it in an animated form. I don't fully understand why, but those people are there. So... That's why they well, keep the making them. There must be a lot of people as well who just aren't reading these comics, and you know. So rather than go, oh, I'm going to dig out this Hulk arc from five, ten years ago. Oh look, there's an animated movie of it. I can kind of get the gist of that in seventy minutes, and don't need to bother reading the comics. Or some people who just don't read comics, I guess. You know, I know. I know there's oh yeah, probably yeah, certainly. Loads I mean, of that, yeah. kids out there yeah. who watch the cartoons. And I mean, if you're if you're probably growing up hooked on superhero cartoons, you know, then this this is probably the logical next step rather than picking up a comic. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, like I I sort of go back to the X Men cartoon and the Spider Man cartoon in the nineties, which like I loved them and I devoured them, and they were my gateway into comics. Was getting into those. So like I mm. you know I saw an X Men story on the TV and I wanted more X Men stories in comics. Um, and I still, you know, if I rewatch those, I still enjoy the adaptations of those stories that I know because they, they feel different and there's a kind of nostalgic element to them. So I wonder if maybe people who, people who like the straight to DVD films kind of have that affection for the medium that, that I lost at some point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I just talk- I mean that you know there's they clearly work is what I'm getting at like and you know and we I think all of us I don't I don't know about you Joe but I'm sure Seb watched the cartoons and stuff when he was younger yeah well I watched the X Men yeah, no, one I, I never really well. got into the Spider Man one actually I don't know why <laughs> I don't know if it was just the timing of it but um, yeah I, I loved the X Men cartoon everybody loved the X Men yeah. cartoon well in regards to that I I so I, I was um, I was a little bit bored the other night and I booted um, Arkham Knight back up on my PlayStation and just <laughs> kind of like strolled around Gotham City beating up thugs on that for about half an hour. You know, just a bit of, you know, a bit of stress relief at the end of one day. And, um, Shouting and, the names of co-workers. <laughs> and after I'd finished, um, I popped an episode of the Batman animated series onto... Um, on Amazon Prime because I was like, oh, this yeah, I was just in, I was in the mood for it, and um, I watched the first episode of that, and you know, first of all, because I mean, those like those versions of the versions of the city depicted there actually seem pretty similar, like, and obviously the voice cast it's the same, and um, it, it felt like a natural progression on that evening, but it also got me thinking, watching that Batman animated series that had a very distinct visual style mm. and a very distinct anim like they were going for something particular in the animation of that series um 
And when I compare that to this, and now obviously that's beloved, but it was, you know, probably, especially when it started, fairly cheap to produce, early 90s cartoon, and this is um, an animated movie made in 2010. I was just... I was just baffled by how generic the animation style mm. seemed. And it seems cheap and it seems kind of like, like you, like you say, motion comic. Um, I've never read a motion comic or watched, I don't know what you do with a motion comic. Um, <laughs> you throw I, it in the this bin, is, this is what you do. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what I imagined that that would look like, which is kind of like you feel like you've got, like they've got individual panels mm. Um like, because it'll be like a still, and then the camera will kind of just move across to like. There's a, there was just one shot that summed it up for me where it was like Hulk in the gladiatorial ring, and like the we've got like a still of Hulk, but it's not a still because he's kind of like breathing in and out and hulking, and then the the camera just uh, slides over to the left, and we see the characters behind him, and it was just for me, it was like okay, that's kind of like one panel to the next panel and we either kind of transition in kind of like little slides like that or just hard cuts. Um, and then it's kind of just a character standing there talking, not moving around a huge amount. Um, and that's probably why this movie relies and maybe why this does, does work as one to adapt to an extent that you can get around that by just cutting to the action sequences more regularly. Um, but even then I felt like we were kind of watching the same moves repeated again and again <laughs> like Hulk can only jump up to smash something so many times but I just thought it was a little bit it was a little bit bland and generic in, in terms of a, an animated style and I, I again this is this is talking to this movie in particular I'm sure that some of the other ones have more distinct styles of animation but this for me was just a little bit disheartening how, how bland it was I mean it's a, it, it's a particular style i think and actually to an extent um dark knight returns does this a little bit as well although the 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 actual the art style in dark knight returns they kind of try to go looking a bit like the frank miller stuff but in terms of the actual animation and and how things move um it reminds me kind of and, and james might be able to be more specific about this because it strikes me as a quite manga style in terms of the kind of the colouring and the way that things like explosions animate, and there's even a particular technique for the way that characters move. And often when you've got a character who's kind of stationary, but they sort of wobble slightly. And it, I don't really know how to describe it because I'm I'm not hugely well versed in animation stuff. But it it it's a style that reminds me of um, things like you know Ghost in the Shell and and, and Akira. Although you know Akira is. I think generally more stylishly animated, but it's more that it's a style that kind of apes that that kind of um, that older audience's manga style. And it does seem that any of these comic adaptations, if they're past the cutoff point where they're not aimed at kids, um, they go they default to this generic, slightly edgy but ultimately quite bland Japanese influenced style. Whereas actually, you look at some of the cartoons that are are aimed more at a younger audience, and they seem to have much more variety in the style. You know, you look at something like um, the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. You know, doesn't look like Batman the Animated Series. Although you know, I know they're separated by twenty years. That's just two examples off the top of my head. But you know, that that's got a slightly more cartoony and and to be honest, a slightly more interesting and characterful style. Um, yeah, and yeah, there's just something about I mean, the kind of movement, and as I say, it's whenever you see an explosion, and like the explosions always seem to animate in exactly the same way in all of these <laughs> cartoons, and it just it just leaves me cold to be honest. And I'd say maybe it's because like I wasn't in any way raised on manga, but 
a Western cartoon that it, while, while I think there's there's elements of manga that and, and particular manga films that I find interesting, a Western cartoon that's influenced by manga and anime. Sorry, I keep saying manga. I should say anime, shouldn't I? Um, <laughs> doesn't really interest me in the slightest. See, I'm I'm not sure I agree with your assessment. Like, I think you're right that they they're very influenced by Japanese animation, but I think it's more in the sense of there's an anime industry that knows how to pump out low cost animation <laughs> at high volume and the American industry has gone, Oh, well, let's do that. Um, like the, this film specifically doesn't, to me, it doesn't look like it had much of a budget. And I think if you're doing a straight to DVD film, you want like of a specifically of an existing story, you want to make the animation, the selling point. Mm. Like with things like Ghost in the Shell and Akira, I feel like the the reason they work as adaptations isn't just because of the writing; it's because they look impressive, mm. and this doesn't look impressive. Like, there's no point where you're marveling at the screen here. No, like it's all very rote yeah. and very simplified, and there's it's nothing very generic. You, yeah, there's nothing that like pops out the screen. I mean, that's a problem with all modern animation to some extent because it's inherently low cost like i think the last marvel cartoon i really enjoyed was i think ultimate spider-man actually is is well done even though i don't like it uh wolverine and the x-men i thought was really good Mm. but yeah a lot of them like the incredible hulk cartoon it just it reminded me of that in that there was nothing visually exciting about it it kind of shoots itself in the foot right at the end as well because over the credits it 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 shows the characters by showing art from the comics and the first thing it does is it flashes up a john remitter jr drawn image of the hulk and it's like well all you've done there is show us a much more visually interesting version of the hulk and if this whole film was in you know the look of it was influenced by john remitter jr's art it would instantly look much more visually striking you know i know there are people who aren't necessarily fans of remitter i am completely a fan of remitter so you know i I would much rather see that version of the hulk on screen than than the one that they ended up with it must be a common a common difficulty though because you know when you're drawing the detail that you want for individual panels or splash pages or whatever in a comic you're you're, you're putting all your attention into you know that that particular pose or whatever and like i can imagine just trying to recreate that in a movie like this is just not going to work at the scale that these are being you know these are dvd movies you you just you can't do that. It would be it'll be interesting because I know it's, you know Sony are doing an animated Spider-Man film for the cinemas. Um, it, I would find it interesting to see one of these done with ambition and budget, and and hopefully you know that will be that. Um, you know that th- they'll be doing that kind of thing, or they'll they'll be following the cartoon mold a little bit more. Um, I don't know about you. I also had a problem with a lot of the voice acting. Um, <laughs> First of all, that anyone... I mean, you had, like, the, the bug-like creatures like Meek and, um, obviously, Hulk is um, different. But anyone that was from Sakaar, the, the main planet on this, I, I just kind of... They all kind of sounded the same, male and female characters. And, I mean, nothing for me summed up the blandness of the voice performances of this more than right at the start when you hear... 
Iron Man explaining to Hulk why he's been sent off the planet. <laughs> he sounds and you're kind like, of bored. <laughs> yeah, you're like, Iron. Wow, this is animated Iron Man. He's a he's a boring man. <laughs> <laughs> I was just I was trying to imagine how Downey Jr. would have played that scene if it was done live action, and then kind of daydreaming for five minutes about a more interesting film than the one I was watching. And I, I can only like if if you looked away from the screen for you know thirty seconds and had to guess which characters were talking at any given point, I think you'd struggle. Mm. And I'm looking at the IMDb page now. It seems like everyone has got their own individual voice actor. Just that they all sounded the same to me. It was like watching an episode of Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that a combination of that and the fact that that in the first half in particular, so little of it was dialogue based, meant that um, yeah, if you weren't vividly focused on the screen at all times and because it's not very visually interesting i wasn't necessarily visually focused on the screen at all times uh because you know i was kind of doing other stuff while i was i was watching it and yeah it did make it difficult to keep up with the the thread of it which i suppose meant that it was fortunate that by about the 40 minute mark the plot hadn't really progressed beyond uh hulk has been sent to this planet hulk has been forced to fight gladiatorial fights He's just broken out, and now he's good. Yeah, exactly. And now he's going to help the resistance. It's like it didn't really feel like the movie started until about forty minutes into a seventy-minute running time, because yeah. that first which forty is minutes is just gladiator which... fight, gladiator fight, gladiator fight. Oh, beat a Ray Bill, but still gladiator fight. Um, but then I I probably found that first forty minutes more interesting <laughs> than the rest of the movie. It was weird. Like that was the bit that I knew from the story already from reading those six issues of the comic. Um, and it was kind of like I remember at the end of the comic seeing you know Hulk was kind of walking away from the arena into like the the rest of this world. And I remember asking James like, oh, so this that's not the end of the story. There's more. And he's like, oh yeah, there's more. And then. Um, I, I probably could have filled in in my head that next bit. I, I don't know whether James. I want to ask you about the comic and what you know, what you kind mm-hmm. of feel that this removes from the comic. Um, because yeah, it just it just I was surprised by how rote the rest of the story felt, especially given that this is you know a, an arc of the comic that is very very well liked and revered. Um, we should mention for the listeners, so Planet Hulk, if, you, if you've got no idea what happens in the story of Planet Hulk, um, Hulk is sent off the planet by the Illuminati, kind of Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, name all those kind of characters, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and so it ends up on this planet and there is kind of maybe a, prof- a prophecy that he is going to be, that he is like this, this uh, figure that's going to come and save everyone on this world. Um, and this world is kind of presided over by a guy called the Red King, um, and he and he puts this disc in Hulk's chest, um, which to a degree makes him subservient, or at least that the Hulk can't just smash and escape, and makes him fight in a gladiatorial arena. Um, after a few fights, Hulk manages to escape with members of the Resistance, and then comes back to take on the Red King at the end of the movie. That's that's by and large the plot, right? That's the the broad strokes of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so James, what 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 am I missing in nuance there in describing the plot, and what um what is the movie missing in the nuances of like what does the movie take out of this story that's there on the page? Oh, there's like there's the romantic subplot with Kara. Um, there's like the every character, every one of the Warbound has their own individual thread. Uh, 
I mean, I don't want to introduce too many spoilers, but there's a big thing with Meek and how he rebuilds his hive. Yeah, uh, see, I, I, I read up on Meek the, afterwards because I because in this film he was the one I liked the most, and then I read up on what yes, was yes. what was done with him afterwards, and then I was like, oh. <laughs> no, he's he's really good in the comics. Yeah. Like he has a great arc. Um, no, and I mean it was just surprising in terms of where he went. It's like it doesn't necessarily oh, yeah, yeah, go yeah. where you would expect based on him in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's kind of the actual story is like a Conan esque like rise from slave to king really and like the third act is is hulk in charge of the planet more or less like he's assumed the role of the red king um but oh so this so this kind of this kind of cuts off after the second arc then the, yeah, the animated movie more does. or less yeah like the i mean there's just so much like the thing that i that struck me about this film is the way the second half is all kind of everyone's backstory like they they keep doing flashbacks so that you can learn who all these characters are and it comes really late in the film whereas in the comics yeah. it, it's kind of strung through the entire thing like you learn how all these people came to be on Sakaar um yeah we really we, so we get flashbacks for Korg and for Kaira right yeah in this um, and the, and the, the Korg one is basically you you would struggle to do the movie without it because it explains his fight with Thor and Beta Ray Bill following, and obviously Beta Ray Bill plays a big part in the the kind of the 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 big turning point in the middle of the movie. Um, <laughs> which I, do, I I don't know you guys that was that was my favourite scene in this animated version. Um, and that that was a kind of a low bar, but I just thought that the it at least shook up the kind of the action beats a little mm. bit. Beta Ray Bill is a character that I kind of like. Um, I kind of like him visually as well. Um, and um, yeah, I just I just generally found myself having a little bit of fun in that sequence that I didn't really feel like I had. Uh, too many more points of the movie. It did kind of make me think that the whole story might have been more interesting if the whole story had focused on Beta Ray Bill being taken prisoner and, and being the one who had to fight in all the gladiatorial fights. <laughs> but that's maybe because of my natural <laughs> prejudice against the Hulk. I mean, the weird thing is, in the in the comic, it's Silver Surfer as mm. well. Like, why why swap Silver oh, Surfer? Oh, rights, rights reasons. Um, they, they don't oh, okay, have the rights okay. to do animated Fantastic Four characters. So, okay, fair um, enough. Yeah. <laughs> And I think I think it's a quite good yeah, substitution. It, if you if you have to take out Silver Surfer, I think Bill is a quite good character to substitute in for the Silver Surfer. I think that worked quite well. Yeah, to yeah, I thought it was because I was trying to remember whether I'd seen them on the page. Now on the page, Korg does fight Hulk. Uh, does fight Thor, right? Sorry, Korg uh, yeah, fights sorry, Thor when... in a flashback sequence. Yeah, Korg is retroactively revealed to be one of the Rockmen Thor fought in one of his first stories or something. Yeah. Um so yeah. that's so that is there but it's but it's actually the Silver Surfer who turns up rather than Beta Ray Bill. Beta Ray Bill never makes it into the arena in Planet Hulk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I I thought that I thought that worked as a change and maybe maybe that was another reason why I kind of I kind of liked it that it felt a little bit different. And I thought Bill worked in that sequence in the arena. I kind of um yeah, that was that was a that was a high point for me. <laughs> what was it James if you if ideally what would you like to see introduced in this like you know if you if 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 the movie 
to make the movie more interesting for you, would it have added all of that stuff back in, or was there anything pivotal that you felt just? I think that, for me, it was more the it was the scale of the of the film that I wanted. Like the Planet Hulk ends with like a revolution on Sakaar and Hulk freeing, and then eventually being forced to leave the planet to return to Earth. And like it when he, the moment when he has to go back, like it's emotionally gut-wrenching because he's literally leaving behind this like life he's built for himself after mm-hmm. you know after being you know starting off as a literal exile there and like it that's what i like about the the story in itself is the the epic scale of it married with this kind of emotional like hard-hitting loss and I don't feel like the the film had any interest in telling either half of that. It was just like let's let's put in a bunch of fights for, yeah. for the hook. Yeah, and I I can't remember exactly how this was done on the page, but Hulk talking as frequently as he does, and I get that they're all supposed to have like translators, so I guess it would be slightly easier for Hulk to. Um, to really explain himself and, and talk a little bit more cogently than he normal, normally does, but I, I just, I just was so bland and weird watching this, <laughs> watching Hulk in his big Hulk form, kind of just talking like Batman, really, like just <laughs> like a slightly growly normal voice. Like, <laughs> what's is how how much did did he talk in the comic? Is it as much as this? Yeah, but like the. Like, the comics version of the Hulk, like, goes through so many different iterations that I feel like they they can get away with it because he, you know, he is semi-intelligent mm. and he's kind of thuggish rather than dumb a lot of the time. And this is, and this is just the Hulk, right? This isn't Bruce, because obviously Bruce Banner doesn't appear on screen at any point during this. It's just the Hulk. Yeah. So is this just, is this just Hulk as a, we're supposed to be thinking that the character we're following here is not Banner, it's the Hulk. Well, I There's think no dichotomy here. The Hulk has completely taken over. Like in again, in the comics, there's a really nice moment where they're like there's one Bruce Banner's basically not in it. And I can't remember if it's in the main arc or one of the side stories that isn't in the collection, but there's one kind of there's one scene where Bruce Banner comes out just for a moment. And the the rationale is it's too dangerous for Bruce Banner to be out at all on Sakaar, so he just stays where he is and doesn't fight the transformation. Yeah. Um, and that you know that's interesting. And whereas in the in the film they're just like we're not going to address this because it it will just confuse people. Maybe I don't know. Like yeah. as a Hulk fan, it disappointed me to not see that dichotomy at work at all because that's one of yeah. the things that makes the character. Yeah, yeah. I also felt like, uh, I mean, because the the idea of this on the page, the idea of Hulk going to this other world and becoming a gladiator and basically doing like an old old style Roman epic only with the Hulk at the centre of it is really is a really fun idea to me. And I didn't know whether it was that the like I I got past the initial excitement of that concept by reading some of the comic, but I just didn't really feel like there was any fun 
happening in the movie. <laughs> everyone seems everyone seems really really down about this situation. <laughs> like there's there wasn't I, I didn't even really feel the glee of like you know the the moment where Hulk's like oh now I know who to smash. Just the the, the, the animation and the voice acting just really just really killed it for me. Just really like, sapped that excitement and fun out of this concept that I think should be a lot more fun. He can't, you know, th- throughout this, what he kind of felt to me like more than anything was Wolverine. He felt like Wolverine in one of those stories where Wolverine decides to bugger off and, and not bother anyone and then finds himself caught up in a in some kind of confrontation and helping someone solve a problem and he's the kind of gruff outsider. Basically Wolverine in the two Wolverine solo movies. Um, he just kind of felt like that. Yeah, there was no sort of... Yeah, it just felt like, you know, the gruff outsider who comes along and who... It's that moment, I think, and it is actually quite a nice moment when, when Meek is trying to persuade him to come with them and he's like, but Meek, Meek is Hulk's friend. And he's just like, I have no need for friends. And it's like, yeah, all right, get over yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Meek, Meek and all of the bug creatures, very, very Gollum. Specifically Schmeagel <laughs> yeah. Gollum. Um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. You're right, um, Seb. He was probably my favourite character in this, just because he felt like a little bit different, yeah. distinct. And I, I, if he was on the screen, I knew it was him. Yeah, um, anyone else? <laughs> and I could actually remember his name as well. <laughs> Given that, uh, I, I want to kind of um, move <laughs> move away from this movie now. Um, we've heard that Thor Ragnarok potentially starts on a planet. Where, where basically Thor is in some way banished from Asgard and discovers Hulk on this planet, and the two of them have to journey back to Asgard together, road trip style. Now, the 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 change here to include Beta Ray Bill, I just wonder whether you could have some real fun by starting off a Thor Ragnarok movie with. Thor fighting Hulk in a gladiatorial arena and having them really knock seven bells out of each other, like like that sequence here. Is that is that something you'd like to see? Because that was the one thing that I was getting out of this was going. I wonder if they are going to integrate it into how how they would do it. Either that, right, or Thor just turns up on a planet which Hulk is already kind of the king. <laughs> Possibly. I'm still not sure Hulk's going to be on another planet, though. I think he's just going to be on an island in the Pacific somewhere. Uh, No, well, Planet Hulk has been dropped as a reference point from people who know things about... about, um... Thor Ragnarok. Mm. I kind of think they've done their Thor-Hulk fight. I'm not necessarily interested in seeing another. You don't don't need the fight. Okay, Okay. so then... I'd rather see them fighting together. Yeah, so maybe, so maybe Thor does turn up and he's he's already ruling over this planet and uh, yeah, maybe maybe you just you do get that fun sense of the wrench of seeing him leave. I kind of <laughs> it seems like a very Joss Whedon-y thing, you know, like you know, like Buffy already being you know w- wanting to stay dead in in at the start of season six of Buffy, mm. like Hulk, dragging Hulk off this off this planet to get back involved with Avengery things. I can. I, I I can quite I can see Ruffalo playing that kind of like pissed off, not wanting to be a hero, but conflicted about having to do it thing in in the MCU. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you so know, it was just basically that was one of the few things that got me engaged and excited in this film. Was thinking about how it could possibly work in in a in a proper movie. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, you know, we're not Kevin Feige, right? <laughs> That is true. That is true. 
Um, you are, though, at the end of our podcast at least once every week when we do the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, do you have any... Because uh, th- this is going to be a rather brief discussion, just because there, there really isn't the stuff to talk about Planet Hulk compared to the normal stuff we're doing. Because there's no... You're right, there's no subtext, there's no themes. So you just got any kind of closing thoughts on this um, and, you know... Are we likely to do any more animated films like this on the podcast, or would we just be a little bit more selective? I would say don't hold your breath if you're an animated film. Like if if you are an animated film fan, really pitch as hard because I'd like to know what people see in them. Yeah, I'd, and I'd I'd be interested to to have someone on who is more into these, who could pick one that's a really strong example of them, and and come on and talk with us about why. Um, because I'm sure they are out there, and I've watched a few, but they're just... Yeah, I never come out of them feeling like I haven't wasted my time a little bit. And at least this one was short. At least it was shorter than Batman v <laughs> Superman. Um, yeah, and I, I'll be honest, I didn't think it was terrible. It just kind of Yeah, it doesn't do anything wrong. Engage me. Yeah, it's just, it's it's just, just a it's bit just fine. I could, have, I could imagine kind of if this is the kind of thing on Netflix or Amazon or some kind of streaming service, just putting it on in the background and kind of letting it play out and, you know while I'm doing something else. I can kind of imagine that as like, you know, an easy way to ingest a little bit of comics. You know, like, oh, I haven't read this comic and I'm probably not going to get around to it. So I'll, I guess I'll just, I'll, I'll watch that for 70 minutes and that that's fine. Yeah, that was I mean, I, 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 anyway. haven't, I haven't read um, that this, this part of Planet Hulk. I've read some of World War Hulk, but so this sort of, got across to me what happens in that part of Planet yeah. Hulk. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I, and then I read what job. the differences are. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, Seb, um, The Killing Joke, which obviously is, you know, is getting this adaptation soon. I mean, I was watching the trailers for that today, and that seemed to me to be something that would be a potentially very difficult one of these animated movie adaptations to do. But there was there just seemed to be loads of footage of stuff that wasn't in the comics, and the art looked like it had some influence from the page, but also felt distinct in its own right. And so, what I, I, what I'm basically wondering is whether there is stuff like that out there that you can track down that isn't quite as rote and quite as much of a trudge as Planet Hulk felt. Planet Hulk felt. I mean, yeah. So it, you know, if you're taking something like Killing Joke, where it's it's such a short comic to begin with, then you you probably do need to pad it out, and and maybe that's kind of the the way to go is sort of you know find something where you are putting a fresh spin on what there has been previously, whether that's doing something different with the style of it. And actually, um, when when we come to the pitch section, I will I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, and yeah, with this, you know, having to actually come up with your own story rather than trimming down a story to fit a film. The only thing with The Killing Joke is that it's kind of... I mean, as much as I enjoyed that the first time I read it years and years ago, and as much as I still think there's a lot that's interesting about it it's such a problematic comic for all kind of reasons that um doing a cartoon adaptation of it is something you've got to be really really careful about maybe th- maybe that's another opportunity though don't you think that you know to maybe correct <coughs> some things well, you know potentially yeah somewhere? i mean yeah if you if you want you could do a version of the story that keeps some of the good elements and um you know if they, if they keep that final joke speech from the joker intact but they lose some of the barbara gordon stuff then 
um, arguably it could be an improvement, although it's an improvement that as with All-Star Superman, it's not going to have Brian Boland drawing it. And from what I've seen of the art style, it does look... While it does look different from some of the other Batman stuff they've done, it still kind of looks fairly generic. I kind of think it's worth doing an adaptation just to hear Alan Moore's opinion of it. (laughs) Because someone will ask him and he will give a lengthy reply that condemns the entire (laughs) entertainment industry, and that'll be worth reading. To be honest, that's becoming a trend with kind of any comic book adaptations from the 80s. You've got a grumpy Alan Moore or Frank Miller sitting out there somewhere waiting to tell you how this depiction is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be fair to them, like people keep asking them, do you like this? And they just give the honest reply of, not in the slightest. (laughs) (laughs) Or or normally, I haven't watched it and I won't. (laughs) Because I'm just furious. Maybe maybe there are some... um, some some people over at Marvel who feel exactly the same way about this Planet Hulk movie, eh? <laughs> I don't know what, what Greg Pak thinks of it, actually. I, he seems like a nice guy, so I would imagine that any public pronouncement he's made about it has been extremely positive. Polite, maybe. That would be, that would be the way I'd go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, well, we'll move on now to our comic book recommendations. Um, guys, what are you going to recommend me based on Planet Hulk? Um, please don't tell me it's another animated Hulk movie. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad that you said earlier that you find Beta Ray Bill interesting as a character, because rather <laughs> than recommending you a Hulk comic, I'm going to recommend you a Beta Ray Bill comic. Oh, excellent. Um, so this and actually you're kind of getting two for the price of one here I think anyway it depends on how they are on on Marvel Unlimited Um, so this is a three issue miniseries from about 2009 I think um, called Beta Ray Bill God Hunter Um, it's written by Kieran Gillen um, which is the reason I read it in the first place I don't think I would have gone near it otherwise because I didn't really know anything about Beta Ray Bill Um, and it's got a couple of different artists worked on it over the course of the three issues Um, and it's basically a story about Beta Ray Bill deciding that he's going to go and take revenge on Galactus for wiping out his home planet so um, the stakes are fairly high Um, and it's just a a, fairly good um, story with with Beta Ray Bill who is a yeah, an interesting and, and fairly engaging but weird character at the centre of it. Um, but you also get, as I say, they did this in the print editions, and I assume that it's the case in the Marvel Unlimited issues, but apologies if it's not, although these issues will still be on Marvel Unlimited, so you can go and read them if you want. But you get, as well as the God Hunter story, um, each issue has a reprint of one each of the first three Thor issues in which Beta Ray Bill first appeared. So you oh, get cool. his original appearance and introduction and origin and everything. Um, and those are written and drawn by Walt Simonson, um, who is a somewhat legendary writer and artist from that era. I'm I'm not a big fan of, of Thor comics, but he, his run on them in the 80s is generally held as one of the greatest, and he's a he's a pretty great artist, particularly. I've um, heard of him, so that yeah. you know that's exciting. <laughs> um yeah so it's you know um i think if if you liked the bit of of beta ray bill that was in this film as as i did as well then i think this is a good jumping off point from that do you know what i've enjoyed pretty much every encounter i've had with beta ray bill um so i am uh I'm, i'm looking forward to this because i can't think of any other thing we could have done on the podcast which would have led you to recommend that comic (laughs) so something good has come out of this episode listeners if you're still with us james what have you got for me uh so 
ages and ages ago when we did Incredible Hulk, I recommended the first arc of Planet Hulk to you, which I think stopped at issue 95 of uh, Volume 2. Possibly? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I recommended the, the initial arc, which is Exile. Yeah, which... I think Sad Hulk was walking away into the forest at the end. Yeah, that ends with him escaping the the arena so that's, that's yeah like after the, first, the silver surfer fight yeah, yeah that's the first 40 minutes of the film and so the next half of the film adapts the second arc which is called anarchy and that is incredible hulk volume 2 issues 96 to 99 uh, and that takes you to about i would say the midpoint of planet hulk as a as a whole uh, but then the next arc is six issues, and after that is World War Hulk. So, you know, you've, you've got to stop somewhere. And I think, just for synchronicity, this stops at about the same place as the movie. Okay. Well, yeah. I'll tell you what. Here's here's what I'm going to do. Because um, I think I might end up with a massive case of blue, or perhaps, gr- in this case, green balls, <laughs> if I stop at that point. So what I might do is just read as much as I can this week. Just keep yeah. going. I mean, if you want to keep going, Planet Hulk ends at issue 105, and then it's World War Hulk. World, World War Hulk. After that, how long is, is like World the, War Hulk? That's about five or six issues. Uh, that's a really good event comic, but I think you can decide for yourself whether you want to carry on with that or not. Okay. All right, listeners. Well, you know, we'll see how productive a week I've had. Um, probably the more issues I've read, the less productive my week has been. Um, <laughs> at least, at least in general. Anyway, um, so yeah, we'll we'll leave that as a, an exciting little twist for the mini Um But we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. And this is probably going to feed back into a lot of stuff that we've already discussed because we've already discussed why maybe the Planet Hulk adaptation didn't work for us and, you know, the different ways that you can do it and what works and what doesn't work when you're doing this. So what I want to know is if you could pick any comic arc to adapt into an animated feature, which would it be? And um, James, I'll come to you first. (laughs) So kind of... The question you, you're you essentially asking here is, which comic arc would you like to see a worse version of? <laughs> <laughs> you could pick something really crap. Like, you know how, like, movies remakes, it's like, why do they always pick the good films to remake? Why don't you remake <laughs> the stuff that was, like, it had a good idea at its centre but was badly executed? Mm-hmm. Like, give me a 2016 nuts remake of Xanadu, for example. I would watch the hell out of that. Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, basically what I was thinking is what story could you not do without using animation? And for that reason, I think I would like to see an animated Howard the Duck. <laughs> because Ooh. we've seen the live-action attempt and it wasn't great. Um, specific storylines, I'd quite like to see the, the latest Chip Starsky, uh, the opening arc he did which was about Howard going after a kind of fake infinity gauntlet. Uh, mm. But, you know, it's just it would just be a good excuse to use lots of Marvel characters and have have a faithful version of Howard on the screen. <laughs> I would I would love to see that. I think that would be really fun. Um, Seb, can you outdo some Howard the Duck? Well, unfortunately, you see, James, James has 
cleverly picked a comic that he knows that you have read and liked <laughs> so you're now already picturing what that will be like so he's obviously already won because I'm going to recommend a comic that I don't think you've heard of um, you might have heard it mentioned but I don't think you'll know it um, so it, I mean along similar lines I thought what's a comic that you would never see a live action movie adaptation of um, and so I went for I briefly pondered saying Crisis on Infinite Earths but I'm not that insane um, so I went for Kingdom Come, which is a 1996 miniseries by Mark Wade and Alex Ross. Never heard of it. So <laughs> it's a big DC Comics story set in a near future where um, basically a kind of new breed of more violent anti-heroes have become the kind of popular superheroes. You, you may detect an element of, of kind of comic book um, commentary and satire in this. Um, Superman <laughs> has been driven into retirement because basically um, the public don't really want a superhero who doesn't kill and who they see as too moral. Um, <clears throat> yeah. That doesn't sound like the Superman <laughs> I've seen recently. Um, but then um, a catastrophic incident in Kansas draws him out of retirement and he puts together a new version of the Justice League and basically goes around trying to restore a sense of heroism to all the kind of young heroes that are kicking around. Uh, but in the meantime, you've got a group of... Um, human villains who are very much trying to use the kind of meta-human crisis to their advantage to take over the world, led by Lex Luthor. And you've got Batman leading a group of kind of vigilante and other hero characters who disagree with Superman's methods and so are opposed to him. And these three sides all come together in what eventually is a large cataclysmic clash. Um, it's just a really, really great series. It's got one of my favourite ever character moments um, involving both Bruce Wayne and Lex Luthor. It's got a, there's a great twist moment and a really good character moment involving them. The character stuff generally is really good. Um, it's, it, it's a big and entertaining series um, and it's just got the kind of scope because it really does involve like hundreds and hundreds of characters in, in some <laughs> scenes. I was going to say, um, I, I read Kingdom Come and I barely followed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because it was... I mean, in an adaptation, you'd have to be a bit clearer about who... You'd have to focus more on certain characters and just have other characters more as background dressing, Although, which is kind of what a lot of them are in the comic anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, you just you could never do it as a, as a proper movie. So I think with animation, you could actually pull off the story. Um, the other thing that would be interesting about it is, you know, we've already talked about how, you know, you lose the art style when you're doing these kind of animations. And the striking thing about Kingdom Come, and Joe, if you've never heard it, I would suggest you Google it. Um, it has art by an artist called Alex Ross, who was very big in the 90s for doing photorealistic painted artwork. Um, he did he did Kingdom Come and he did a series called Marvels, which I know one of us is going to recommend to you in response to a movie at some point. <laughs> I'm sure of it. It's like you can't get through this without reading Marvels at some point. Um, and obviously you can't replicate that in a movie, so I would like to instead go completely in the opposite direction and take the Bruce Tim Batman animated series style of animation and apply that to Kingdom Come because then I think that would give you a reason to adapt it, would be to very willfully go in a very specific animation style and see how that comes out. Well, I mean, now <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm conflicted because, I mean, I don't... I feel like Seb has laid down a bit of a you know a challenge there, saying that I'm obviously going to give the win to James. <laughs> um, and, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play into his hands, kind of, by refuting that because I, I think I'm actually more intrigued by the idea of just something I haven't read at all like um, especially after watching Planet Hulk 
I think I just <laughs> you, I think James you're right like a, an adaptation of Howard the Duck would you know probably be a better version of Howard the Duck than we've seen anywhere else on screen but you know would it be as good as Zadarsky on the page probably not so I'm <laughs> intrigued by this thing that I've never heard of that sounds I do I do, I, I do kind of think you should read Kingdom Come there was a part of me that realised when I came up for it with it for this pitch that it probably should have been my recommendation after Batman v Superman I was going to say it's <laughs> on the other very, hand it's I'm very glad much that you enjoyed Generations but yeah like it, yeah. it's like imagine the tone of Batman v Superman but with an element of like hope in there as well <laughs> yeah. well maybe you can recommend it after writing. Justice League Part 1 or something like that <laughs> yeah I might well do if, if, I, if we can wait that if we're long. not dead by then there's a good version of Captain Marvel in Kingdom Come as I recall yes very much so yeah um, okay, well, so, so, but all all of that essentially leads to Seb. I'm awarding the win <sighs> to you this week, <laughs> James. I think I'd actually maybe even like to see if you maybe if you'd have recommended some of the um, Gerber Howard the Duck that I hadn't read, that would have given you a better chance. Yeah, but you know, not so much the Chip Zdarsky second arc because I'm not I've not not enjoyed that as much, James. Oh, no. but the, Lin- the Linda and Shocker issue. That was all right. It was quite good. I think I liked all the stuff in the first one more, though. I don't like Howard in space, guys. No, no. Apart it's a, from bit, that Linda it's a bit rubbish. Yeah. Well, that wasn't Howard in space, was exactly. it? So that's, that's yeah. the difference. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Comics chat. God, you can imagine that just over a year ago would never have happened. <laughs> I wouldn't have known what the fuck you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, that is it for this week. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic universe. Some people have been doing that in the past couple of weeks. Right. So, yeah, we've got another three Patreon backers to thank. Uh, Ashin Boyce. I hope I said that name correctly. Uh, Chris Lang and Daniel Hardy have all backed us since the last episode. Uh, and that puts us $12 away from recording a commentary on a film of the Patreon backers choice. So if you want to be the person who pushes us uh, across that threshold, we need $12. $12 a month. So that you can force us to do a commentary on, like, Man of Steel or something. <laughs> <laughs> or even ma- make us rewatch Howard the Duck. <laughs> this is a question for me. Are we just going to do one of those, or would there be, like, repeat ones? Would we do one, like, every certain amount of time? Or we'll, We're going to do one, and then if they're popular, we might do more. Okay. I All I'm saying is, listeners... That three-hour version of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice that's going to be coming out on Blu-ray around six months from now. <laughs> I think you're going to want us to be at $100 at that point just to sit Seven James in front of it again, which they promised they wouldn't, and, you know, make me angry for three hours rather than two and a half. Okay, and um, also, Seb, you've got a, a very exciting thing that you'd like to bring to our listeners' attention. Uh, yeah, so this unfortunately didn't quite come out in time um, for the Batman v Superman episode, which means that you're all probably sick of anything and everything to do with Batman and Superman by now. But um, if, if you're interested, you can go, and if you're in the UK, because it is unfortunately UK only, but you can go on the BBC iPlayer and find uh, a documentary called Building Batman, Sculpting Superman. Um, it's an iPlayer-only documentary that was done for Radio 1. Um, it's a documentary about um, adapting Batman and Superman for the movie, and it contains a segment 
with a person whose voice may well be familiar to you if you listen to this podcast talking about the comics history of Batman and Superman, kind of like I do on this podcast, really, um, but just for, for other people instead. Uh, so if you're so interested, um, I think that's going to be on the iPlayer for about another three weeks or so before it disappears forever, so feel free to check that out. How were you introduced on that, Seb? It was, it, I loved your introduction. What was it? Co- comics expert and all-round nice guy. All-round nice guy. Well, we can endorse that. <laughs> I've watched it. It was very informative and entertaining. Um, <laughs> sorry, that sounded sarcastic. It wasn't meant to be. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I, d- I really didn't mean that to sound sarcastic. It was both entertaining and informative. <laughs> Good. Okay. I now can't. It's now not possible for me to say that and it not sound... Oh, God, I've ruined everything. Um, okay, well, um, I will now round things off by saying you can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe at cinematicmultiverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at cu underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Milo, stay here. Looks like Daddy's got to go kick some ass. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with The Mask. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.